Uh, but we are kicking off pick six today, and, and I'm a, a big guy. I love to kind of dissect words and see how people use words. And, and sometimes I see this, especially I think in our culture, is we start to get buzzwords. And they're words like we tend to, to use to the point of overuse, especially when it comes to using superlatives, like big words like, man, that was the greatest thing that ever happened until tomorrow. And then tomorrow, man, this is the greatest thing that ever, they can't all be the greatest thing. But what, what happens is we tend to overuse these words. We use these words so frequently that we overuse these words and they kind of lose their meaning. I remember, especially in the church world, it seemed like probably five or six years ago, the big word became epic. Everything was epic. Uh, man, this, this, this series, this series is going to be epic. And, and, and this, this idea, this is going to be epic. And, and it became everything was epic to the point that nothing was epic because we overused the word. Well, there's a phrase that I see. It's starting to become overused. I laugh about this now because I'm about to use the word. But if there's a buzzword kind of now that people always have a tendency to want to use, or a buzz phrase, I guess, is, it's the idea of being a game changer. And we think, man, this... This game, this, this idea is going to be a game changer. This series is going to be a game changer. All these things are going to be game changers. And, and sometimes we can overuse words. But, but here's the deal. When we talk in football, a pick six is what happens when, when there's a quarterback for the offensive team. And he drops back for a pass. And his intent is to hit his wide receiver and hit his tight end for a pass. And eventually their goal in, in having an offense all together is to score a touchdown. And so their goal is to pass the ball to their receiver or their tight end or maybe even a running back and say, let's, let's get some yardage, let's get a first down. Maybe even, hopefully, let's get a touchdown. But a pick six happens when the quarterback drops back and he goes to throw the ball to his intended target and, and a defensive back or a safety from the opposing team steps in the way of that and returns that pass uh, however many yards, maybe 90 yards, for a touchdown in the other direction. And here's what happens. Instead of that offensive team moving towards their seven points, the defensive team gets the interception. They return it and score a touchdown, an extra point. And literally, it's a 14-point swing. Well, in the NFL, the average margin of victory is somewhere about 11 points. And so when a quarterback throws a pick six, we're not overusing the word to say that pick six could be in that game that could be a game changer. Well, we're hoping in an entirely different way that for some people, pick six here at Ridgepoint Church over the next six weeks might be a game changer in their life. Uh, you see, when, when I first, I, I didn't necessarily grow up going to church. I was about 18 years old. I was invited by a friend to go to church, and, and, and I started to realize who Jesus was and, and the impact he could make in my life and what it meant to really give my life to him. And I knew very, very little about the Bible at that time. And I had a bunch of questions. And fortunately, I had some friends, some mentors that poured into me, and I eventually had the privilege to go to Bible college and seminary. And here's the deal. 22 years later, I still have questions. And a lot of us, we have questions. And sometimes they're in the back of our mind, and we don't really entertain those questions a lot. We just kind of, they're there. I didn't even know that they were there until someone brings up. And yeah, I always wondered about that. How does that work? What, what, what does this verse mean? And so we said, we want to do a series this summer where we start to answer some of those questions. And so we've invited you over the last month to, to just to give us some questions, to volunteer some questions. You can do that through a card or through the website. And we're going to entertain those questions. And our goal over the last couple of weeks, and by the way, before I get into this, if you still have questions, maybe said, I kept meaning to do that and I kept forgetting to do so. If you still have questions, you can still submit those. I said last week we're actually going to have an extra week added on where we answer some of the questions a little bit more popcorn-type answer where it's quicker, kind of quick responses. So if you still have questions, feel free. I know some of you have submitted some this week. Feel free to submit those questions this week. 
But we, what we try to do is we try to categorize the questions as best we can. And we try to say, okay, if we have six weeks to cover as many of these questions as possible, how can we categorize these questions into six different areas and try to answer those questions as in-depthly and, and as, as passionately as we can while still covering as many questions as possible? And so we categorized them in six different areas. And, and we, as we did that, we said, okay, what's going to be the first week? What's the first question we have to entertain that's going to be the biggest question to lay the foundation for this? And there's one question that was asked a couple of different ways. But one question that came up that we said, okay, this is really, for where we're going to be at in this series, this is really important for us to get. And so real quick, we're going to put that, word, that question up on the screen. We'll read it, and then we'll get into that. What do we do with apparent inconsistencies or contradictions in the Bible? And some, one person actually volunteered said, for instance, we're commanded not to kill, and yet God orders war and killing. We're commanded not to steal, and yet there's looting and war and all that stuff that comes with war. Very valid question. And we're going to actually answer the, the, the really the, the gist of that question is what do you do with inconsistencies? We're going to answer that towards the latter part of the message. But to get there, I said, for us to get there and for us really to get in the series, we have to ask the question, what do we believe as a church about the Bible in general, what, what do we believe about the Bible? So we want to begin by asking that question and then get in. If, if we believe that about the Bible, then what do we do with inconsistencies? And when I ask this question, it's, it's when I ask the question, what does the church believe? Part of that is, as leadership of church, we said this is our doctrinal statement. This is what we believe. But the church is made up of individuals. And so part of it also is what do we believe, because we are the church, what do we believe about the Bible? I'm going to give kind of the official position, this is what we believe about the Bible, and this is how we answer some of those apparent contradictions and inconsistencies. But if we're the church, it doesn't matter if we have an official statement. If we say we're going to agree with to do something differently, then it's not really the, the values of the church, because we are the church. And so a couple of jumping off points. When we start to talk about what do we believe about the Bible. Probably the, the, if, if you have a pastor or a theologian that's having this discussion, the first verse they're going to turn to is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Don't turn there. The words going to appear up on the screen right now. But in 2 Timothy 3, 16, it says this. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Did anybody go up, grow up in church and you memorized this verse but in an alternate translation? Because there's another word that's often used here. All scripture is inspired by God. One of the things that we believe about the Bible, there's three words we have a tendency to use. One of the things we believe about the Bible is that the Bible is inspired. Literally, it means how the translation works it here, that God breathed out the words of scripture. Now, God used human authors. In fact, as we see the scripture that is brought together, there's 66 books in the Bible. And of those 66 books... It was written by over 40 different people over a period of over 1,500 years in three separate continents. And yet there's a a harmony to Scripture when you you bring it together. And and it wasn't like the Bible was just written and wrote down all right away brought together. It took the church years and decades and centuries to bring the whole thing together and say, we believe now that we have the full and complete Scripture. And now for hundreds and, and thousands of years, we believe this is the Scripture. This is God's Word breathed out to us. So there are a couple words we use. We use the word inspired, meaning God breathed out the words of Scripture. But there's a second verse over in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there because we're going to look at one more verse in just a second. But it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. 
But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the prophecy in the Old Testament, but it's just as true about Scripture today. That these men spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. I remember as, as a young student, just starting to learn the Bible, I had this, this professor who became a great mentor and one of the people I respect most of my life. And he was explaining what this verse looked like, what this verse meant. And he, and he said, guys, understand, God was using human authors. When you read the Gospels, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and God used the personalities, God used the background of those specific authors. And when you read, you read their personalities into, into what's there, but it's as if they were lifting up a sail on a sailboat. And God was breathing into that sail what was going to get the word moving. That when we read scripture, it's, it's God breathing the word of scripture. And the Holy Spirit carrying it along for us. So when we pick up our Bible today, we can say, and what we believe is that we believe the Bible is inspired. That means God breathed out the words of scripture. We believe the Bible is inerrant. That means it is without error. Without factual error, without historical error, without scientific error, we, we believe that as a church. And we also believe that it's infallible. So it's inspired, it's inerrant, and it's infallible, meaning we believe that it's not capable of error. When it comes to doctrine, when it comes to correction, that it is without error in our life. And so if we believe that as a church, if that's what we believe, then what happens when we start to face some of these contradictions? Because maybe, maybe your parent, your, your children are growing up and they're going to church, or maybe this was your experience. You grew up and you went to church and, and you got out of the house and maybe you went away to college and you had a professor who started to question everything that you believed. And, and you went in and you, and you were strong. You're like, man, I believe all of this. I believe the Genesis account. I believe all the, all the stuff that happened. And the professor comes across and says, wait a minute, you believe all that stuff? And he starts to dismantle piece by piece all of the stuff that you thought you believed because you're going to get in that situation that professor's going to be very knowledgeable and it's going to seem, man, they have some great information. I never heard any of this before. And because a lot of us, we just kind of take what we've always learned and maybe heard it in church, you heard it from a parent. You're like, I always kind of believe that, but I didn't know why. The Bible says be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. That means that we have to be able to have that answer ourselves because at some point it's going to be a professor or it's going to be a friend, a coworker that says, wait a minute, you believe all that stuff. What about this inconsistency? What about where the Bible says this and it's not harmonious with this? What do you do with that? I heard a discussion recently about this topic, and Andy Stanley is one of the pastors that I respect greatly, and he has just a great way of communicating things. And he said something that at first appeared controversial. In fact, I heard some pastors kind of get on him about this. But he was talking about that setting, you know, what happens when you go away, and, and if, if we hold on to these things and, and all of a sudden someone attacks them and we don't have an answer, and all of a sudden, it seems like our whole world is crumbling. Like, like literally, someone attacks our one area of our faith, pulls that card out, and the whole stack of cards just starts to fall apart. And Andy asked the question, what do you do with that? And then he made this statement that some people viewed it like they weren't sure about because of the way he worded this, but it actually is, is so, gets right to the heart of what we're talking about. He said, listen, this, is gonna, this sounds shocking to some people, but the Bible is not the foundation of our faith. I knew as soon as I saw this, it was up on Facebook and stuff, and pastors were getting upset about that. He said, Jesus is the foundation of our faith. His death, his burial, and his resurrection, that's what made it possible for us to have faith. Now, when I read the count, Scripture argues for that it is the Word of God, but a person who's outside of the church who says, I'm not a believer, says, well, yeah, Scripture says that, but I don't believe Scripture in the first place. It's circular reasoning. I'm not going to buy into that. 
But Annie says, let's take a step outside of that circle for a second. Because even people who say, I don't believe in the Bible, say, but I believe in Jesus. I believe he is a good person, all these different things. And Jesus goes back and says, all these things actually did happen. Jesus says, Adam and Eve did happen. And, and so because, and Annie's argument is, Jesus, who predicted his death and his resurrection, says these things are true. And I put my faith in him, so I'm going to believe what he has to say. And then when I read scripture, and it argues for its own inspiration, then it starts to make sense to me. Because if scripture itself didn't say that, then it would really be really stupid for us to believe that and try to argue it. But the fact Jesus says it's true, the fact that scripture itself argues for its own, the idea of inspiration, then we start to say, okay, now I can buy into that. And there's also this idea and, and, and this, this thought. See, there are a lot of people who say, well, I believe in God. I believe he's a good person. I believe he's reliable. If God is constant, then doesn't it make sense that he'd want his word to be consistent? If God is real, if he's, if he's loving, like so many people, else, even outside of Christianity claim, doesn't it make sense that he'd want to communicate with us? And if he were to communicate with us, doesn't it just make sense that he'd want a word that's consistent for us to be able to know what his heart is? So we come and we say, okay. Scripture argues for its inspiration. We believe, I can, I can start to buy into that idea. I still have questions because we do have a lot of questions. In fact, this particular question that we had looked at, can we look at that question one more time, please? We look at the question, the question there are a couple of things in, in that. For instance, what do you do when we're commanded not to kill and yet God orders war and killing? We're commanded not to steal and yet there's looting and war. Those are questions that we have to face. When we approach Scripture and it seems like there are inconsistencies, there's a couple of ground rules we should have before we begin. Just approaching Scripture in general. As we approach Scripture, three things I want us to get. Number one, be careful when reading the Bible to differentiate between what is recorded and what is condoned. There are sometimes there's stories in the Old Testament especially where it seems like, man, the story is jacked up. God's not saying the story was good or that it was right. It's this, he's recording history. It's as if he was writing, if, if right now if we wrote a history about everybody who's in Ridgepoint Church right now in this season of their life. Uh, there'd be some, some good things. There'd be some things that are probably not so good. And it's not that God or the Bible is condoning those things. It just is that it's recording history. This is what's happening. And there's times people point to the Bible and say, it's inconsistent. Look what it records here. And that wasn't good. And, and God would say, I agree it's not good. That's why it's recorded. I'm not saying those things were good. So be careful to differentiate between what is recorded and what is condoned. The second thing, very important, anytime you read scripture, let the context be your God. Let the context of that particular scripture be your God. Every time we approach a book of the Bible, it was written in a particular setting for a particular purpose. One of our goals as, as communicators of scripture is, is to, to read scripture and to build a bridge from where I'm at right now in 2015 back to the original understanding of where that scripture is written. So if we're reading one of the Gospels, we have to understand who is the author writing to? Who, who is he trying to reach? What was his purpose in writing? All those things are very important questions because then I understand, okay, what was God communicating in that setting to those people that that scripture is written to? And then our responsibility is then not just to leave it there, but then to build a bridge back to our lives and say, okay, understanding the context in which it, when, in which it was written, how does that become practical in my life? And I believe that is very possible to do that. In fact, so that's what we try to do every week is to say, understand where it was written and why it was written. And I'll come back and say, how is that pertinent to me? 
understand the context. Because if we start to take things out of context, it can become really dangerous really quickly. I remember years ago hearing a story. It's, it's a fictitious story. It's an exaggeration. But I remember reading a story about a guy, and he was really struggling with a decision about what to do. And he said, I know I should turn to Scripture because Scripture's going to give me the answer. And he, he, just, he didn't really have any rhyme or reason to Scripture. He was just going to turn and point. And so he was really struggling. He was having a hard time in life. There was a lot of family stuff that was going on, a lot of business stuff that was going on. So he said, I'm just going to flip open my Bible someplace, and I'm going to point. And he points to Matthew chapter 27. And it says, and Judas hung himself. Well, that wasn't exactly encouraging. <laughs> That's not what I wanted to do. So he closes his Bible, says, I know, I'm, I'm going to do this. And he, he flips another spot, and he points. He turns to Luke. turns to one verse that says, Go and do likewise. Wait a minute. I, I don't like that a whole lot. Let me, let me try again. There must be something better. It turns another spot in John. It says, and what you do, do quickly. <laughs> Taking scripture out of context is dangerous. That's an exaggerated, you know, I think sometimes we don't necessarily do that. But there's sometimes we, we have no background to what we're reading. We just start to read and we take a couple of verses and say, well, that, that was meant for me. And we don't understand the context in with it, which it was written. Sometimes that can be an encouragement, but sometimes that can also be very dangerous. Like there are cults that start that way from taking one verse out of Scripture. The third thing, when the plain sense makes sense. When I approach Scripture and I'm reading, when the plain sense makes sense, make no other sense. There's some people who, who read one verse, and, and I saw this recently. I, I saw a pastor who's become pretty, pretty famous, and, and, and he, was, he took a verse, and, and, he, and someone had posted this on their Facebook wall, and, and he took this verse, and, and it was like written about Old Testament Israel, and, and he, he got really fired up about this whole idea. And then he applied that to our modern-day government and what's happening and all this stuff, and, and he just went from here in this context to way out of context and said, God is referring to this, but now he's actually referring to us. And, all, and he went crazy with this. I remember the person posted, I'm thinking, like, we should know better than to take Scripture completely out of context, apply something that never was meant to be applied, and then say, this is obviously speaking to us today. And, and like, it was crazy stuff. It was crazy talk. We have to be students of, of God's Word because sometimes the contradictions that the world hears is not contradictions in Scripture. It's contradictions in our interpretation of Scripture. See, similarly over in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Sometimes the inconsistencies that people see is because we take a verse out of context and run with it. Say, well, the Bible said this. The Bible never said that. It makes us look very false makes his word look false when it wasn't what his word said it's us running with our own interpretation I believe when we hold up this Bible I can hold up God's word and say thus says the Lord this is what he said but if we take it out of context it becomes our own words it becomes dangerous so what do we do with these contradictions uh, the first contradiction that was mentioned in the question uh, was what do you do when you have this command thou shalt not kill which in Exodus 20 we have the ten commandments and, and we shouldn't kill and and, and I think most of us would agree that's probably a good law to have. We don't want to kill. And yet we read sometimes in the Old Testament where God commands Israelites to kill people. 
In particular, there's a command over in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 18, where God commands Israel to literally destroy the Amalekites. And there's war, and there's, there's, sometimes there's just war, but there's war. And so the question that was asked was, what do you do in that case? First of all, we have to understand the context in which it was written. Sometimes there are commands by God for just war, which we'll get to in a second. But actually, as, as the question was worded, what do you do with this command not to kill when, when God sometimes commands to kill? Well, first of all, in Exodus, when we get the command not to kill, the word there in the Hebrew language means literally to kill with malice, with harmful intent. When it is my, my goal personally to kill another human being with malice, there's, there's no political uh, structure in place. There's no war that's been commanded. It just is my goal to, to with malice, take another person's life. That's what Exodus, Exodus is referring to. When it gets into war commanded by God, and even today Christian theologians will talk about the idea of, of just war and how there are certain qualifications that have to be met for there to be just war. Now, if a person goes to war for government that's not involved in a just war, then that killing would still be killing with malice. But at times, as ugly as war is, God says at times that war is necessary. We don't like that. It's not what we desire. But sometimes, because of how governments are, that happens. But if we try to separate ourselves from government, try to do things on our, on our own, then we kill with malice. And that's what God's referring to, is not to kill with malice. Literally, thou shalt not murder individually. So war is not at all in the picture there. So we can answer that question and say, I'm not saying it's, always, it's an easy answer. We can't gloss over the idea that, that, that God tells us not to kill, and yet war is ugly, and, and people die, and there is looting involved in all that. We don't like that, but it's there, and I think we can answer it with that. But there are other places. In fact, as I was doing research, there's a bunch of blogs that are out there. There's a bunch of uh, stuff that's been written. And some people say they found 101 inconsistencies in Scripture. 101 contradictions in scripture and so the question becomes okay if if i believe that the bible is god's word then what do i do with those apparent inconsistencies or those apparent contradictions i want to look at just one today and as we look at this one it's going to actually list two different things that are contradictions and i want you we're going to read two stories today from matthew's gospel and from luke's gospel i will say beforehand we can't just get away from it and say well those must be different stories it's the exact same story we don't have time to read all the context and, and all of this but it's the exact same story as we read this so if you have your bible slip over over real quick to matthew chapter 20 matthew chapter 20 we're, we're going to read verses 29 through 34 and i want you to pay attention to the details of this story uh and, and as they went out of jericho a great crowd followed him now where did they go out of jericho they went out of Jericho. A great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. How many blind men? Two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So the story about Jesus healing these two blind guys as he left Jericho. Now, compare that real quick. We're going to flip over to Luke chapter 18. Same story in Luke 18, recorded in a different gospel. But Luke 18, verses 35 to 38. And as he drew near to Jericho. What does it say in the first verse, in the first story? They were leaving Jericho. Here it says they're coming to Jericho. 
Same story. How, how does that happen? Like that's, people look at that and say, wait a minute, that's an inconsistency. In Matthew's gospel, it says they were leaving Jericho. and Luke's gospel, says they were drawing near to Jericho. Well, that, that must be a contradiction. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. How many was it in Matthew's gospel? Two. There's one here. Wait, how does that work? So it says, in hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It is the exact same story. In Matthew's account, they're leaving Jericho. In Luke's account, they're coming to Jericho. In Matthew's account, there's two guys. In Luke's account, there's one guy. And actually, the way the Gospels are written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. They have a lot of the same stories written from different perspectives. Mark's Gospel also has one person actually named the the, the blind man's name. Uh, So you have these different accounts that seem to have different information. There are some people who want to gloss over this and say, well, it really doesn't matter. Like, the details aren't that important as long as we know that Jesus is powerful, that he can heal people. Like, that's really the big idea we're trying to get to. But I would say if if God missed out on the details, and I believe that God is a, a detail-oriented person, like he, he cares about details, then can I trust this is true? If that's my mindset. But if I come to this and answer these questions, and at first let's answer the second one, because I think the second one's a little bit easier to answer. What do you do about the two people versus one person? If, if I were to go, say, say that today one of my sons and my daughter, we're going to go to a baseball game. And, and, and they say, hey, let's go to a Rays game today. So we go to the Rays game. And, and a couple of weeks from now, I'm talking to uh, one of my friends about how, how my son's doing or whatever. He says, hey, how's your son doing? And I say, he's doing great, man. I had a chance to go to a baseball game with him the other day. Is that statement false because I only mentioned my son? No, it's still true. I did. I didn't say I only went with my son. Had in Luke's account, we only, he said only this one person was healed, it would have been a different story. But he says, yeah, there was a person healed. There was a person healed. There are two people healed, but for his purpose. See, each writer of the Gospels writes to a specific audience for a specific purpose. And as you come to them, some of them were eyewitnesses that were actually there seeing the event take place. And others, like Luke, was just a historian. He studied these things out, and God used his background in history to, to find out what happened. So even though their stories might not have all the same details, their stories are consistent. And that's true of all scripture, written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years and three different continents. But yet the, the, the story meshes, there's consistency there. So the second part of the question is a little bit easier to answer. But the first part gave people problems for a long time. Because they said, well, in one, it does say they're going to Jericho, and the other says that they left Jericho. And then some archaeologists were doing a dig, and they discovered there was the, the, what became known as the New Jericho, which had, had flourished in Jesus' time. It had road systems and aqueducts, and, and the king had put a lot of money into building up New Jericho. But prior to that, directly down the road was where Jericho used to be. And for the most part, it, it was uninhabitable anymore. There weren't a lot of people who lived there anymore. But there's a road that went back and forth, and that road was traveled pretty frequently. And so one account is taken from the perspective of old Jericho where Jesus is leaving, and the other account is taking it from the new Jericho where Jesus is coming. And we read that and say, okay, and we could read throughout Scripture, and people bring up these inconsistencies. And what I encourage anyone to do is whenever you, we're not going to be able to answer this. If, if we have 101 uh, different things people are trying to come up with, say, we found 101 different uh, discrepancies in Scripture, 
it would take us 100, 101 weeks to answer all those questions. We don't have time to do that. We'd, we'd eventually get stale with that real quickly. But to give us the tools that as we approach Scripture and we have questions that we have or questions that our friends have, to say, how can I start to break this down? And if I have these questions, how can I start to answer them for myself? Because I wish we had that much time to devote to every one of these apparent contradictions. I wish we had time to do that because it's fascinating stuff. Uh, people in the past had thought they found a historical inaccuracy, and then later on they found out actually what we thought was true wasn't true, and the date in Scripture is actually recorded. Is, that's, that's correct. They didn't expect that to be true. We could take time to look at all these different places where people found some historical inaccuracy or, or some uh, apparent contradiction in Scripture and they find out, okay, that wasn't necessarily the case. But the only way we can do that is saying we can't take time every week to talk about these things. But for some of us to say, I want to take up the mantle and study this for myself. I want to roll up my sleeve and I want to start to get passionate about this. I want this, God's Word, to become really important in my life. See, it, it's, it's great that we have a forum to talk about Scripture on, on a regular basis. It's great we're able to answer these questions. And it's great that as a church we say, here's where we stand as a church. This is our doctrinal statement as a church. But again, if, if we as the church, we are the church, if we don't believe it, it doesn't matter what the church statement is if that's not where we're at, if that's not what our passion is. And so a follow-up question that I have is, okay, if I believe this, if I answer some of these contradictions or these apparent contradictions and, and, I, and I want to approach God's word as God's word, then my question becomes, okay, then what do we do with it? If that is actually what we say we believe, and I'd say even though we might have some questions, I'd venture to guess that most of us say that's probably the position that I have. Maybe I haven't thought about it, but that's probably the, not the, the position that I have. But then my follow-up question to that is, okay, then what do we do about that? See, I had a chance last night uh, my, my oldest son, Jaheed, for Father's Day, bought me tickets to go to an Orlando City match, a soccer game. Has anybody been out to Orlando City at all? Some of the matches, there are a couple people. Um, here's the thing. It's, it's great. There's 35,000 fans sitting there watching this MLS game. It's really cool. But, but my son did something different. We've been to a couple games. But there's a section in, in the Orlando City crowd called the Ruckus, and it's where all the crazy people are. And, and, and there are some people who, I promise, they're crazy about soccer. They're beating drums and, 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 and all this, this stuff. They're really loud. They paint their faces. One guy had a mask on. I mean, they go all out for this, this type of thing. There are probably like 20 different flags flying. Like, it was mayhem. It was a ruckus. It was an actual ruckus. And, and, and I was watching, and I was, I was fascinated by this because I said it in their own way. There, there are some similarities between what they do and, and what a worship service is all about. See, at the very front, they had these, for the most part, they had two guys. They had this little stage area that was out front. These people, they're back to the match the whole time, and they're just directing people in their chants and their cheers and all the stuff they're doing. And they're passing. One time, you know, the, the guy ripped his shirt off, and he's swinging his shirt around and going crazy. If, if our worship leaders did that, I would have to get on them, Kyle. <laughs> We don't want that to be the case, but, but this guy took his shirt off, and he's, he's swinging his shirt around. He's going crazy, and, and, and the people were passionate. The thing is, when, when we got there, the section we were in, we were called the supporters. The, the ruckus was right here, and the supporters had his uh, general admission in this one supporter section. And so I told Jeet, I said, Jeet, I want to be as close as possible to that section. I want to be as close. So we sat literally the seat next to where the ruckus was. So I'm watching this whole thing transpire. And they had these cards there. It's kind of like our, our info cards. But the thing is, they have lyrics to all the songs. 
I'm watching. I'm like, man, this is kind of like a worship service. I can just kind of follow along. Except a lot of it was in Spanish, and I don't read Spanish. I don't. <laughs> and some of the words that are on here, we would not say in church. I'm just saying. But I'm watching, and I'm like, dude, they're, they're so passionate about what they're doing. Like, like they came crazy, and, and they all came running in together, and it was probably 600 people all in the section, and they were crazy, and they're passionate. I said, man, they're, they're passionate about something that, that really at the end doesn't offer a whole lot of hope. Orlando City last night lost 2 nothing, And they're passionate. They'll be back out again in a couple weeks, and they'll be just as passionate about something that's going to come and go. And yet we say we have hope right here. And my question is, if we, if we believe that, if we actually believe that, then where's our passion that matches that? I was watching, and I, I was excited. Like, I loved it. I loved the experience. Like, it was really cool. I thought, man, they're going to go home all, like, they're all fired up, and they just lost 2 nothing. They're going to go home, and there's nothing for them to, to have encouragement about after that match. We do. Even in the midst of life's difficult circumstances, we have hope. And the question becomes, then, where's our passion about this? And I know some of you say, well, I, I've tried to read the Bible, and, and it's really hard to understand. I have a lot of questions. That's okay. Be consistent. And by consistent, I don't mean one week. It'd be like me starting to work out. And first week, I start running, and I'm not doing really all that well. And after a week, I'm like, you know what? I tried that. It didn't work out. Let me go back to eating the way I used to eat. I didn't gain. Yeah, in a week, you might not gain a whole lot. Stay with it consistently. And over time, the growth happens gradually, but it starts to happen. And it starts to snowball, and there's more growth, and there's more growth, and there's more growth. And at some point, you dig in a little bit deeper and say, I need to answer some of the questions. It's not just, I don't just want to read Scripture. I have to do that. But I also want to understand it. A while back, someone recommended this ESV study Bible to me, and, and I got it. And there's some great notes in here that I can read and say, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that about. In fact, right here, 19 verse 1, I didn't even look at it until right now, but it actually has a note on entering Jericho versus leaving Jericho. I didn't even know that. Some of those notes are right there for us. And so get a study Bible, dig in a little bit deeper. And I know some people's response, because I have some friends that are like this. And their response is to say, well, I'm not much of a reader anyway. I, I get that. But guys, if, if you're married right now, imagine going back to a spot in your life before you were married. And, and your wife, who at that point was your girlfriend, writes you a love note. And she writes this long love note explaining all of her feelings and all that stuff. And, and she hands it to you. And your response is look at that and say, thanks, but I'm not really much of a reader. <laughs> How's that going to go for you? <laughs> Probably not very well. See, I remember at that point, because I was a student up at University of Florida up in Gainesville. And, and, and Beth used to write me notes. I, I, I'm not kidding. Almost on a daily basis, I'd go to my mailbox and there would be a note. And I loved it because I was starting to understand who she was as a person. I was starting to hear her heart. Well, God writes this, this love letter to us. Explaining his heart to us. And our response is to say, it's really deep and it's really complex. I don't understand it all. So I'm just not going to try. And I understand sometimes it is challenging. It is, it is hard. Sometimes we have questions, and sometimes it's challenging because it's convicting. We don't like our heart to be exposed that way. But God says, I give you my word. Because I believe our God is a constant God. 
And if our God is a constant God, then His desires produce a consistent word for us that we can know Him. And so He reveals His heart to us that we can know Him. And if I believe that, if I genuinely believe that, it has to produce in my life a passion to get to know Him in a better way. Let's pray. Father, I know that as, as we gather here, there's, there's often, just the way society is, there's often a, a big difference between what we say we believe and how that belief is acted out. God, we've listed right now what we believe as a church about the Bible. It is your inspired word. It's your inerrant word. It's your infallible word. We can deal with inconsistencies, and, and I believe that there are no real, there's supposed inconsistencies or apparent Contradictions, but God, there are no inconsistencies in your word, for your word is truth. We see that repeated over and over. Jesus himself affirms your word. So God, my question as we leave that, making this relevant to our lives, is okay, then what do we do with that? If we, it, what do we do with that? If we actually believe this, if we genuinely believe this, what do we do with that? God, teach us to love your word. Teach us to be willing to dig into your word, to know what you are trying to communicate to us. Reveal yourself to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen.